Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9, please. We're studying through the book of Nehemiah. We're in chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 through 38. The topic, the Jews hear their history that leads them to repent and rededicate themselves to the Lord. Title of our message, come and listen to the story of a clan called Jews. Let's pray. I'll wait a few minutes for those of you who've never watched classic television. But anyway, <laughs> Father, thank you for our morning thus far. It's been, uh, it's always wonderful to get together and sing, be a heavenly choir as it is because you receive our worship. And now as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher because without his presence here, Lord, we're just wasting time. Uh, make this word powerful and alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. Speak to us between the soul and the spirit where only you can. We thank you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I opened my gift. It was a box of cereal. Kellogg's Cracklin Oat Bran. Growing up, Gino remembered it as being my favorite. But since it was more expensive than others and we were raising children, it was rarely on the shelf. It was an extremely thoughtful gift. The sentimental value was obviously priceless. It ought to have been like that moment when the food critic tasted the ratatouille in the Pixar film by that name. There was just one small problem. I had no memory of ever eating Cracklin' O'Bran, <laughs> let alone it being my favorite cereal. I was concerned that Gino had lost his mind till I realized that all the other members of my immediate family had a shared memory of my absolute passion for Cracklin' O'Bran. Maybe if I tasted it, Every wonderful memory would come flooding back. Let me tell you something about Cracklin' Oat Bran. It tastes like cardboard. <laughs> Worse yet, wet cardboard. You'd be better off using the cereal as cat litter and eating the box. <laughs> in the movie The Forgotten, a woman believes that she lost her son in a plane crash 14 months earlier, only to wake up one morning and be told that she never had a son. There's no physical evidence she ever had a son. Her husband and her psychiatrist think she's going crazy. Spoiler alert, aliens are conducting a memory experiment on her. That can't be true, can it? Cracklin' Oat Bran paper by a great... Yeah, anyway, I don't know. It's a true story, by the way. I, I still have no memory of that cereal, and, and uh, it's terrible. I got to thinking about how we remember the past because our text in Nehemiah rehearses Israel's past, something constant in Israel's past. And no, it's not baseball. You'll get that reference if you remember James Earl Jones's assessment of American history and Field of Dreams. The constant in Israel's history was and remains the faithfulness of God. Every act of his toward his chosen people has been and would always be faithful. Now, believers in Christ, including myself, don't always see God's faithfulness in the past. Trouble and tragedy, suffering and sorrow, these can alter how we look back on our spiritual pilgrimage. Even if we continue to believe God is faithful, it's bothersome that we can't always see how he is faithful given our afflictions. If you look back questioning God's faithfulness, you might draw encouragement from this text. I'll uh, organize my comments around two points. Number one, if you don't see God's faithfulness in your past, look ahead. And number two, if you don't serve God faithfully in the present, start again. Let's take a look at our past and looking ahead in uh, the majority of the chapter, verses 1 through 31. 
What happened in Budapest? Well, in the Avengers, during the Battle of New York, Black Widow says to Hawkeye, it's like Budapest all over again. Hawkeye responds, you and I remember Budapest very differently. Fans want to know, but maybe what happened in Budapest should stay in Budapest. Israel's history was accurately recorded in the scriptures. They'd have no trouble remembering it. With amazing brevity, chapter 9 reviews about 35 centuries of history from creation to the second temple. And so verse 1, now in the 24th day of the month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Feast of Tabernacles had concluded two days earlier. We're reading about a special assembly, not a regular calendar activity. This wasn't part of the feast schedule. They had prepared for this by fasting with prayer over those two days. And when we talk about fasting recently in Exodus and in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, we like to point out that when they fasted, they simultaneously took that time to pray. It wasn't that they just skipped meals. Uh, meal prep was a big thing in those days, and it would take hours. And so instead of prepping and eating, they would spend that time praying. And so they fasted with prayer. They dressed with their pull-away repentance clothes, and they had bags of dust, as was customary to indicate repentance and what we might call rededication. Then all of Israelite, all those Israelites, uh, excuse me, I'll try this one more time. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. This wasn't rach, uh, racial, it was religious. Foreigners could believe and be saved. But on this day, God was dealing specifically with his chosen people, the physical descendants of Abraham. Now, verse 3, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. We're talking six hours. You know, a lot of times pastors will say, man, imagine listening to that for six hours and what a commitment they had. Well, you've done things like that if you've ever been to a conference or a, uh, a retreat. Maybe not without breaks. We pointed out last week they had breaks too. So what they're doing isn't that unusual. It's an unusual meeting because it's not on their calendar. But uh, it, you know, it wasn't that they were just so hungry for the word that they wanted to stand there for six hours. It was a special conference they were having where they were trying to accomplish something. And so be encouraged if you've ever been to something. You've done that. Uh, you know, don't don't leave a service thinking, well, I guess I'm not a Christian because I. I've never listened to the Bible read for six hours straight. Not true. You're doing well. You're here. And that's, that's a mind. Compared to all the other people, even Christians who aren't in church, monumental uh, piece of faithfulness on your part. So thank you. And so they stood up in their place. And six hours during that time, they listened to the word being read. And they worshiped, it said. The word confessed here isn't a confession of sin, but a confession or what we might call an acknowledgement of the greatness of God. They confessed to his greatness and to his glory. And then Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, I should say Bunny, but I can't do that. Sherebiah, Bani, and Chaniah stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, lots of Bani's here, uh, Hash. Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodajah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And so that was their confession of who they believed the Lord was. 
Two groups on the platform, with some overlap of names, laymen and Levites, led the liturgy, lifting lively lyrics to the Lord. Verse 6, you alone are the Lord, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, the host of heaven worships you. This is one of those verses that has so much packed into it, I wish we had more time. In it, we have an apologetic for the following doctrines. Sovereignty, special creation, the supernatural realm, divine providence, and monotheism. All of that is packed into this talk. Now, then the text jumps uh, 2,000 years to Abraham in verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Troglodytes, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. I'm using the humor version of the Bible today. Josh, you want to help me out? He said he had. Thank you. Wasn't my idea. I just, you know, I'm just here. Now, back into our text. There's one verse on creation, one verse, and then Abraham. It lends support to something we always allude to. Creation is merely a backdrop or a stage for God to deal with human beings. In the Psalms, this is made apparent when David exclaims, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? It's not arrogant to think that we are alone in the universe in terms of life on other planets. You know, a lot of times you'll hear that. Uh, scientists or atheists or non-believers say, well, with all the billions of galaxies and all the planets and all that, it's just arrogant and, and you know, all to think that we would be the only uh, life in the universe. And not at all if you're a Christian. You understand that perfectly. God said, I'm going to create a, an entire universe that's going to be glorious and magnificent, so magnificent that if you look at it, you have to conclude there was a designer. There has to be a God. And in that universe, on this little tiny planet that is perfectly aligned with everything else in that universe, uh, I'm going to create mankind and and I'm going to give a being free will who can decide if they want to love me or not for all that I've done for them. And, And the rest is biblical history from Genesis to Revelation. Then we jump ahead to the enslavement of Israel in Egypt and their exodus. Verse nine, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them, so you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar, and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them light on the road which they should travel." You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, brought them water out of the rock for their thirst, and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. 
God was faithful to deliver them. But what about the 400 years preceding the Exodus when Israel was enslaved in Egypt? We look at that as a pretty slow delivery. These returned Jews were declaring that God was faithful despite the much suffering of their ancestors. They saw his faithfulness by faith. They don't offer any reason for it. They don't act like they figured it out or that they have any divine understanding of that 400 years, only that they knew that God was nevertheless faithful and had brought them out just as he said he would. Then in verse 16, but they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations, yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. God was faithful to not forsake them even in their grotesque sin and idolatry. He continued to dwell among them in their midst in the form of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing, their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. So they had food and clothing and shelter, plus central air conditioning and heating from the pillar. And actually, that's true. I mean, in the desert, whether it was hot or cold, uh, in the hot desert sun, they had the cloud to keep them cool. And at night, when it would get super cold, they'd have the fire to keep them warm. And so uh, the invention of uh, central air and heating out in the wilderness, pretty cool. My feet swell after a few minutes shopping at Walmart. I don't know if it's a psychological thing. Actually, I like shopping at Walmart. You don't believe me, but I look forward. Every, if you want to find me most Wednesdays in the afternoon, uh, I'm at Walmart shopping, grocery shopping. It's the time of my life. I love it. But my feet tend to swell. John Candy describing his tired feet to Steve Martin in planes, trains, and automobiles famously quipped, my dogs are barking. Remember that? And so we'll use that. Uh, my family, a lot of times we use movie lines. And so people will ask me, well, how you doing? I go, well, my dogs are barking. And um, I find out that very few people have seen that movie. <laughs> On a more spiritual note, God sent his spirit to instruct them. Although our understanding is that the Holy Spirit did not permanently indwell individuals as he does believers today, he was nevertheless active among them as a teacher. It's just a... a well, it's not a minor point, but it's a point that I like to make lately, and that is, uh, you know, just because they weren't indwelt like we are, the Holy Spirit didn't take up residence in them as the temple of God, it doesn't mean that he was inactive among them. He was very active among them uh, in leading and guiding and directing and teaching and, and filling them and doing all of these things. And so uh, you can't look at the Old Testament heroes uh, and saints and think that what they did, they did on their own. They were just as dependent upon God as we are. They just had a slightly different relationship uh, to the Lord than we do. All the same by grace through faith. Salvation is always by grace through faith. 
A lot of people try, I know even as a young believer, I thought, well, in the Old Testament, you got saved by keeping the law. Well, I didn't know any better. I hadn't heard any teaching. And then in the New Testament, you get saved another way. And then it dawned on me from reading the Bible and being taught properly, everyone always got saved from the Garden of Eden forward by the same procedure. Uh, they believe God and it's accounted unto them unto righteousness. And so Abraham, the father of the Jews, he didn't get saved by keeping the law. They didn't even have the law. He got saved because he believed God and God accounted it to him. He justified him uh, and gave him his righteousness. And so verse 22, moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished. They took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Next time your doctor tells you you're obese, tell them your life verse is Nehemiah 9.25. So they ate and were filled and grew fat. Uh, that, that works, right? By the way, almost everybody's obese. Have you realized that? I'm obese on the scale. I said, what if I was five foot 10? Would I still be obese? He said, well, you'd be closer. You know, because they want you to weigh some outrageous amount of weight to not be obese. And then they keep changing. It's like catch 22. Every time you think you've hit your goal, they go, no, no, you're still obese. But uh, anyway, so this is my new verse. In the days of Joshua, God went before them, annihilating their enemies and giving them the spoils. It's what we call a turnkey operation. You ever, you've heard that expression before. It's like, it's all, it's turnkey. You walk in and everything's done. There's nothing to do. And that was the situation as they conquered the, uh, the promised land. In the New Testament, we are called more than conquerors. And so whatever we go through is beyond what these guys experienced in the promised land. And we're called that in the midst of a list of incredible trials and troubles that come upon us, which we must endure either for a time or for a lifetime. God is faithful regardless the length or the severity of the assault upon us. And so we have to keep God's faithfulness in a proper context. Uh, and so, you know, these guys were conquerors. They had the land, the city, the spoils. Paul the Apostle says, so are we in a spiritual sense. We have all the spoils that come to us through faith in Jesus Christ in order to maybe endure these trials. And then he lists some things, uh, none of which we really want to go through, but we do. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in their time of trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven. And according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hands of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. You testified against them that you might bring them back to your law, yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. 
and they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. And so this here, this long passage, this was the time of the judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We might describe them as faithless. God remained faithful. Though they were faithless, he was faithful. He didn't disown them. Instead, he disciplined them using the Gentiles they ought to have defeated. And so they had these city-states and nations that uh, God would empower to overwhelm and overcome them and bring them into uh, bondage or captivity uh, or servitude, and then they would cry out, and he would, after the discipline was uh, finished, he would uh, deliver them and set them back on a path. Nevertheless, verse 31, in your great mercy you did not utterly consume them or forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Gracious, merciful, patient, righteous, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, not forsaking, great in goodness. These are just a few of the superlatives mentioned in these verses to highlight the faithfulness of God. Looking back upon their history, first, there were times in their history when they brought judgment upon themselves, like the times of the judges we just read. God was faithful to use Assyria and Babylon and Medo-Persia as a rod of discipline upon them. And even though these Jews, the returnees, were back in the land, they were still subjects of the Medo-Persian Empire. They still paid taxes to Persia. They weren't free in, in the truest sense of the word. They didn't have a king over them. They had a governor who answered to Persia. There were times in their history, secondly, when they seemed to suffer for no apparent reason, like their four centuries spent in Egypt. They were enslaved, the Bible says, because the Egyptians thought they were growing too numerous. It wasn't a discipline. It wasn't deserved. In all their times, God was faithful. And looking back, they could see by faith his faithfulness, even when suffering seemed uncaused. When you were in a suffering of your own doing, that's one thing. But I'd venture that for most of you, suffering and sorrow, trials and troubles have come upon you more often when you are walking close to the Lord. It's in those times we can either doubt his faithfulness or not see it, not see how it, what's happened in our lives can be considered faithful. Warren Wiersbe recently went home to be with the Lord. On his tombstone, by the way, they ought to carve, be home. Wouldn't that be great? Wiersbe's famous for, how many of you are familiar with the Bible commentator Warren Wiersbe? If you're not, you should get some of his books in the bookstore. Uh, he's the guy that we recommend to anybody who wants to start reading commentaries because they're filled with rich knowledge, easy to read. He was called the pastor's pastor, and his series is called the B series because each book he finds the major theme, and like Romans, he calls it be right, uh, or Revelation, be ready. And so I was thinking a good thing for his tombstone would be be home. I'm going to copyright that, and should they use it... uh, I'll use the funds for a barbecue or something. But anyway, regarding suffering, from Wearsby's point of view and his review of the Bible, he said, pain purifies. Pain draws the Christian closer to Christ. Pain glorifies God. And pain today means glory and honor tomorrow. Paul's words to the Thessalonians were similar. He said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who will do it. And so Paul associated God's faithfulness with your glorious future. 
Your certain future guarantees God's faithfulness in the present. No matter how you think or feel, he cannot leave you or forsake you. He's always there with you with sufficient grace to endure. And not just endure grudgingly, but in, uh, to do it joyfully. If you can't see God's faithfulness as you look back, look forward to all he has promised to do for you. Then look back from that perspective, knowing that in your light affliction, which is but for a moment, God has been and always is faithful. Number two, if you don't serve God faithfully in the present, start again. I'll tell you who is really the worst about giving you a second chance, Darth Vader. He told his general, you failed me for the last time, and then he remotely chokes him out. My favorite move of Darth Vader, remotely choked him out. I always wanted to remotely spank the children, but it just never, may the force be with you. And then he promotes a reluctant captain to be the next admiral. Uh, they must have had uh, a draft, you know, because I don't think anybody would want to serve under Darth Vader, but no second chance with him. God gives you unlimited second chances. His grace is no excuse to sin, but it is superabundant to the disobedient, to the rebellious, to the prodigal son or daughter of God who repents. And so if I say God's grace is superabundant to give you a second chance and restore you, you shouldn't think, all right, I'm going to go out and party and do all kinds of weird stuff because God will forgive me. I can say that with confidence because that's what I used to believe when I was a Roman Catholic because they taught me that I was saved by uh, keeping rituals and by, and by going to confession, my slate would be clean. Uh, and, and so, you know, it was like, hey, do whatever you want, stay away from some mortal sins and everything will be all right. And so you shouldn't hear it that way and think, well, good, I have a license to sin. What you should hear is that, hey, I'm blowing it, but I'm not so far from God that he can't receive me back. In fact, he's calling me back to him. Uh, God gives you unlimited second chances. Uh, he's after the rebellious, the prodigal son or daughter who repents. Verse 32, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. Our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that, he, uh, that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. When they say, do not let all the trouble seem small, uh, that means the disciplinary methods God used had been effective in leading Israel to repentance. In other words, even though they continued to sin, his discipline was effective each time. You ever, when you were raising your kids, did you think, hey, this isn't working anymore? Uh, you know, and you'd have to go to the next stage of discipline, whatever that was, you know, and, and figure out how you were going to get them to do what you wanted to do. And so um, these people were saying, hey, even though we continued to rebel throughout our history, your discipline was good and it was right and it always brought us back as it has today. Verse 34, neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For they have not served in their king, uh, not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you gave them or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, not servants of the Lord necessarily. He's talking about being in servitude to the Persians. 
and it yields much increase to the king you have set over us because of our sins, and they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. So instead of serving the Lord, they had been, and still were, servants of Gentile nations. Here, they are rededicating themselves to the Lord. Uh, They were rededicated men walking, we might say. We hear rededication, and we immediately associate it with backsliding. Somebody says, I rededicated my life to the Lord today. I, I have a tendency to think, well, you must have been in sin. You must have been away from the Lord backsliding. And uh, that's certainly true. They do need to rededicate themselves. But so may you or I, in these unredeemed bodies, amidst the unyielding spiritual warfare for our affections, we can grow apathetic. We can go into a spiritual slumber from which we are called to awaken. We may settle in ways that need stirring up. We may neglect the things of God. We may doubt or draw back. These are all uh, drawn from Scripture. These are all descriptions of Christians drawn from Scripture, especially the New Testament. And, and we don't normally consider these guys uh, backslidden or when this is happening in my life by being backslidden. For example, I've talked to a lot of Christians over the years. And they've said, hey, I'm just not getting anything out of the word anymore. And typically they blame, uh, and, and you know, this can be true. I'm not saying it isn't, but typically they blame whoever's teaching them the word. Uh, in this case, it would be me. And they say, well, I, you know, I just am not getting anything out of the word. Gene, all he wants to do is have crazy titles and he's making too many jokes. I want to get to the real meat of the word. And so they go to another church or they quit going to church and stuff. And, and so uh, now the, you don't recognize that, hey, I'm backslid. Uh, how can I not get something out of the word? Because when I go to church and whoever is up there reading the word and teaching the word, the Holy Spirit is the one who takes it and applies it to my heart. It's not the oratory. It's not the jokes or lack of them. It's not the title or lack of it. It's nothing like that. It's a supernatural transaction. And so anywhere the word of God is actually being read faithfully and somebody is trying to teach it, however dull or exciting they may be, however theatrical or not, the Holy Spirit is at work. Many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, American preacher who led, was prominent in revival. I was reading some articles about him. He only always read his sermon word for word from a prepared uh, text. And they say, everybody testifies this, he was the most dull and boring preacher anyone had ever heard in their life. He had a monotone and he, did, he had no inflection in his voice. He didn't try to make it exciting. He just read, they do. But so may you and I in these unredeemed bodies. And, and that was it. And God fell upon that man in so many great ways. And so we need to recognize sometimes, hey, I'm backslidden. I'm not in grotesque sin. I, I, you know, I don't have to make some huge confession of sin. Uh, but you know, I, I'm spiritually asleep, I'm neglecting, I need to be stirred up, that kind of a thing. And, and so all of us fall into that because we are in our unredeemed flesh. I'm not saying you have to come forward and rededicate yourself. You may need to if the Lord is prompting you. Uh, we make that available every Sunday. Whether you want prayer or rededication, you come to the Lord, that's between you and the Lord. We're not going to Uh, You probably don't know this. I think I mentioned it a few weeks ago, but a lot of churches are using prompts now to get people to come forward. There's a big mega church 
that got busted kind of because they have spontaneous baptisms where the pastor will say, hey, I just feel led to have a baptism today. And they have planted in the audience a bunch of individuals who are going to come forward and act like they're having a spontaneous baptism in order to encourage others who think, okay, maybe I should be baptized because nobody wants to be the first one who gets up because everybody else looks at you and say, you've never been baptized? Or you come forward for prayer. I thought Gene was a Christian, but he went forward at church. And, you know, I, I, we're, come on. We, that's all we think those things. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to force you to come forward. We're not going to pay people to come forward, you know, and, and, and encourage others uh, or put plants in the audience. But uh, that's between you and the Lord. We just make the opportunity available. I'm saying that God is faithful and you can always start fresh serving him by his superabundant grace. And maybe not in your whole life, maybe you're not backslidden in that sense, but maybe as the Holy Spirit has been ministering this morning, there are areas or an area of your life where you feel you have neglected or doubted or whatever it might be, and it might be time for you to rededicate in that area. Speaking of God's faithfulness, a verse from the New Testament comes to mind. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Now, all of us here are sinners. Some of us are saved sinners. If you're not in that group, if you've never been born again, if, if you haven't uh, confessed your sins and repented of them and asked the Lord to save you, ask yourself, why not? Because Jesus said that by being lifted up on the cross, he would draw all men to himself. In other words, there's a power in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus that makes it possible for all men everywhere through all of time to come to salvation. And then it says in the word that he is the savior of the world, especially of those who believe. And so because of what he's done, he draws uh, individuals, the Holy Spirit goes ahead of them, and in prevenient grace opens their heart and frees their will so that they can choose Christ or reject him. And uh, you know, we don't have a large group here, but chances are there's somebody listening that's not a believer in Jesus Christ. But his superabundant grace is here to save you. Uh, just like Abraham, just like Adam and Eve, just like Abraham, and just like everyone else, all you need to do is believe, and he will account it as righteousness. Let's pray.